It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anoush Shikelian and I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen Bush, Patrick Maguire and Alva Ray to discuss the latest in the coronavirus crisis. You ask us how it could affect the deputy Labour leadership contest and then it's time for something completely different. So welcome to the I think fourth socially distanced New Statesman podcast and I'm not going to do the maths on how many it could be but Jennifer Harris the deputy chief medical officer has kind of I think it's fair to say been the first government official to say explicitly what the implicit logic of much of government policy is which isn't this could go on for six months perhaps significantly longer which I think is kind of the the story of the moment Yes, and I think it's a really good thing that she said what she said, because we've spoken on the podcast previously about how Boris Johnson's sort of headline mention of the 12 weeks was actually quite misleading. And also it's sort of sunk into the public consciousness. So people think that it's only going to last 12 weeks when we know that, you know, scientifically that's impossible. But there's all sorts of different time periods that have been flying around. For example, the three weeks of when the legal restrictions on leaving home would initially be in place. That's three weeks, but and after the three weeks, it's then reviewed and, of course, will inevitably be extended. So I think it's good that Jenny Harris cleared some of that stuff up at her appearance. But what's strange is that, you know, that was at a press conference over the weekend. I know that weekends have taken on a very different role in everyone's lives over the past few weeks than they used to have, but it's I'd like to hear it from Boris Johnson's mouth, if you see what I mean. I'd like I'd like it to be at one of the press briefings that everyone's tuning into after a day of work or a day of being at home, you know, worrying about their jobs or whatever, asking questions rather than over the weekend when people generally, I think, anecdotally are trying to switch off from the torrent of news. And I think this might be, again, an example of Boris Johnson kind of outsourcing the bad news to his scientific experts. Yeah, it definitely does. I think the press conferences in general do have this kind of weird vibe of you know, like a really toxic parenting setup, right? Where you have like <laughs> kind of like, and now, you know, fun dad doesn't get to be fun dad anymore. And instead, we're going to outsource all of that to the mean science lady. Because <laughs> if, if you look at the reaction on the sort of Telegraph comment pages, which Boris Johnson used to, you know, graced for most of his working life, then you'll see there's a very clear political incentive. And also, if you look at the front page of the... So if you look at the front page of today's Daily Mail, it's not about the coronavirus, it's about the Duke and Duchess of Sussex talk, and, and Donald Trump not paying for their security and in their new 
uh, in the new bolt hole in California. Similarly, I was listening to Jeremy Vines phone in on Radio 2 earlier and something the scientist he had on, he kept getting the scientists he had on to stress. You know, everybody, and this this, this sort of proves Jennifer Harris's point, which is if you don't follow the rules now, it could be really, really bad and we know how much you hate this now. Jeremy Vines was saying, but come on, come on, the peak is the peak is gonna be in three weeks. Come on, it's gonna be fine after three weeks. Come on, come on. Mm-hmm. You know, we might have to we might not be able to go to the pub, but it'll, be, it'll start getting back to normal. Everybody wants to hear that. And especially now there are thinkers in inverted commas, several sets of inverted commas on the right are now talking, you know, seriously about questions of liberty and also the police's mm-hmm. heavy-handed implementation of these rules. You can see Boris Johnson doesn't want to be the author of whatever the strategy is. He would much rather you know, I think it suits him much more to be a prisoner of the science. I think the funny thing is with Jennifer Harris, I don't know about in your various WhatsApp group chats, but among my friends, she's become a real cult figure. And everyone messages when Jenny's on TV. And I feel like she's a real <laughs> example of the way you know, that sort of old teaching adage that people actually, that children actually respond well to discipline and need discipline, that people maybe at least Boris Johnson thinks that people want someone who will deliver good news and be all jovial but in fact people respond to a firmer hand and respond to that kind of the like the mean science lady approach even though she comes across as really warm and human I think people respond well to being told exactly how long this is likely to go on for it's exactly what that nudge unit was saying on all of its blogs from the very start that that really key to maintaining public trust is to let them in on the decision making as far as you possibly can and make sure that there aren't elements that don't seem murky or things that they have to take on face and obviously the government hasn't been great at doing that but I think if you tell people that this is likely to be six months it seems like a very long period of time but it at least dispels this idea that it might go on forever or that the government has these ideas that it isn't telling people. I can definitely see why it's important to make sure that you're, you sound like you're as clear as possible so that you keep the public on your side. But I think, again, it comes back to the danger of giving time periods. So mm. Boris Johnson has had a bounce in, a, in approval ratings, hasn't he, ever since the... I don't know whether it's it's specifically linked to the 12 weeks comment, but he's certainly being seen more positively in the nation's eyes since then. And that you know, wasn't a very responsible comment, even though it did provide this sort of strange pastiche of, of clarity. And now we have someone else coming in and having to say, actually, you know, it's it's likely to be likely to be six months. And, you know, even that couldn't be true. They really don't like answering those questions about putting a putting a deadline on it, because mm-hmm. as Stephen wrote in his morning call this morning, it's impossible to put a deadline on it because, you know, the point of this crisis, the reason why we're in a crisis is because everything's so uncertain. So I can see why, I, you know, I can see why journalists are asking the question because it's what everyone in the public wants to know and it's sort of their duty to to ask it. But I also think that there's a danger in giving set time periods, which people will, of course, absorb. I suppose the thing that was helpful about Jenny Harry's and, and her reply was that really people just want to be updated with what the current thinking in government is. Mm. And I think probably appreciate the honesty of knowing the current assessment and that will change as the pandemic response changes. But at least we have a sort of sense of where we stand right now. Mm. Also, also, I mean, I, I don't know the inside of Jenny Harris's mind, although I'm sure we all will by the end of this if it ever ends. But 
I think it showed if it was intentional, it was a very deft, almost crafty media strategy, which was she said six months, knowing that six months would be the headline. But obviously there was a fair amount more nuance to to Mm. what she said. Obviously she was saying social distancing not the current state of lockdown could last for six months. Obviously, the, se- the her second the second paragraph, as it were, was, of course, I'm not talking about lockdown inevitably lasting for six months. But obviously, she knows the headline will be six mm. months. And in terms of a, if we're talking about nudge theory, saying it could be really bad, six months is a nice way to nudge people into complying now in the hope that it won't be that bad. You know, it's sort of take this nudge now, lads, and we won't give you a smack you over the head every day for six months because hmm. what i find interesting about kind of um sort of the fact that jennifer harris it does seem at least anecdotally to me is, is the one that people i know have picked up on and like i wonder how much that's because she was the the scientist on the day that tom newton dunn at the sun asked his question about look if you're dating someone uh can mm. you <laughs> go and go and visit them right which i decided to declare war on a chunk of my own friends and some indeed some of our listeners which now okay yeah lots of people will and go well of course you can't what a stupid question however I would say that is probably the number one question I have been asked by friends listeners etc etc and I think then it shows as I was right the kind of importance of that transparency and taking people with you in then she has I think become identified with something then both we in the press and the government has been quite bad at doing, which is providing people opportunities. Actually, with the exception of Sky, you have a really, admittedly, of course, the problem is then in many ways not a mainstream outlet. But, you know, with their, with their hashtag Ask Sky News, where they have a medical expert on and people ask some various questions. And one of the things that I think then collectively the political class, as you might call it, is failing at is providing people with opportunities to ask questions like you know a question I got this morning which I am trying to get an answer to which is you know if I take my child out for their exercise can I then go out again for mine because obviously if you have a small child you'll know that you can't really do much exercise of your own while you're trying to keep your child safe it's a good question I wonder how much part of Harry's mania is that she is because she was there when that question was asked she is the one sort of face of this to have answered a stupid question, quote unquote. Or, or, or she's the one that gives answers in the sort of language that normal people understand, right? Normal people aren't talking about squashing the sombrero. They're saying, when can I go to the pub again? Or, you know, when to, to use an egg, you know, when, when will the kitchen that is half fitted be able to be, when will the builders be able to come and resume work on, on the house? You know, they're not thinking, oh God, well, what's the sort of transmissibility of, the, of this virus and, and, is the second curve going to kick in, in in summer or well, maybe they are thinking that, but you know, they're thinking in terms of what is the material impact this can have on my life. And as Stephen says, on two occasions now, Jennifer Harris has been the one to answer quite boldly, but, you know, helpfully boldly, the answers to those questions. And she does it in such a, a human way as well, um, in a way that kind of reminds me of, of really likable local GPs who end up sort of straying slightly beyond their brief into giving relationship advice. <laughs> Jennifer Jennifer Harris is Dr. Richard Taylor of um <laughs> of, of Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This era, 
it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. us. This question comes from Kieran. How will the coronavirus outbreak have impacted the Labour leadership and or deputy leadership race, if at all? Well, we've spoken a lot about the leadership race on this podcast, but we haven't spoken in any detail about the deputy leadership race. And Kieran's question poses another interesting question, which is, what are the candidates running for? Obviously, we know the, the literal answer is the deputy leadership of the Labour Party. But the interesting question, to which they all have slightly different answers, and indeed, Keir Starmer is likely to have a different answer, is what is the deputy leader of the Labour Party anyway? As well as that, it's certainly been a much, a much tastier and at times less comradely leadership race. But I, I guess that's the interesting question. What What is the deputy leader of the Labour Party for, especially with a leader who's likely to be as powerful uh, as Keir Starmer is in the early days of his leadership? If he wins on the first round, as is um, plausible, if not likely. So it's, it's an interesting question. So I think that is an important follow-up question, but in terms, let's briefly address the, the, sort of the, the question itself. I kind of feel like the answer will come if anyone answers this following question in the yes, which has anyone on this podcast had their mind about the candidates changed in a significant way? I, if any of us had a vote, would we be voting differently than we would have at the start of the outbreak? I don't have a vote and I'm not really sure who I would have voted for in the first place, to be honest. So I'm probably not going to answer this question very well. But I think Rosina Allen Khan has been the, probably the most vocal over the course of the, the virus spreading throughout the UK and, and putting us in this new reality. So I suppose if you'd been paying attention, then she would be the one who perhaps would have most resonated with with um, Labour members who are still deciding which way to vote. I don't know if that's, that's fair. Yeah. Um, but obviously because of her medical background. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, Anush, that similarly, I don't have a vote. And obviously, a lot of votes will just have already been cast. So it maybe doesn't make a material difference. But I think that Rosina Allencan has been really leaning into the fact that she is a doctor and in a, in a position to, to speak meaningfully on this issue. So she's on the cover of Grazia this week. I heard her on Nick Robinson's podcast. I think that while she's talking about her perspective on coronavirus and the steps that the government needs to be taking and answering questions and so on, I think that she's also making quite an interesting and valid point about why she would be a good deputy leader in that when you look at the really interesting story of how she became a doctor and then how she went into politics, there's just this quite moving story of you know how she failed her A-levels but she'd always wanted to be a doctor and her mum organised for her to sit resits and she did another degree and then eventually under the last Labour government they changed the rules so she was able to get funding to go to Cambridge and study medicine as as a mature student. As you drill into what has made her a doctor and then why she went into politics and she says you know it was just because I've spent my whole life being told I can't do things and we hear all the time that politicians aren't ordinary people and we need politicians from diverse backgrounds you know here I am I'm an ordinary person I have you know I've only been an MP for a few years but I've been a doctor for a lot longer I have something really valuable to offer the deputy leadership I think that she just makes such a strong case that maybe if that had happened earlier it would have made a tangible shift yeah the interesting obviously they are not the selector anymore so this matters less than it would have done, and indeed she did get the the requisite number of nominations. But I mean, the the, the very points you make, Alva, are, are things some of Rosanna Allen Khan's colleagues say from a slightly different perspective, which is at the last Prime Minister's questions before 
the lockdown or the, or the penultimate one, um, she got up and asked a very a series of very pointed questions, which sort of were seen to um, misread the room. And more than one Labour MP I spoke to said, "Well, we all know that's going straight on Twitter," which you know is testament to how good uh, the comms side of things Rosanna Allen Khan is. But I'd say some of her colleagues are slightly wary about her judgment and also her propensity to self-publicise, which obviously is important if you're running an internal election. But I'd, I'd say, again, this, this is the flip side of the, you know, only been an MP for a few years coin, just because someone is good at it. And, and this all plays back into the, the, the question asked at the start of this segment, right, which is, do you just want a minister for the Today programme who can be relied on to do very punchy media appearances for the leadership? I'd say Rosanna Allen Khan would be a... The criticism of Rosanna Allen Khan from her colleagues would is actually, as you say, other sort of strengthens, strengthens the case for her in that respect. You know, she's she's good on she's good on telly and has a knack for getting herself in front of a camera or in front of a microphone. But if you're looking for an internal enforcer, et cetera, et cetera, you know, are you looking to, are you looking more to Angela Rayner, someone who has more shadow cabinet experience and experience with, you know, the key stakeholders and participants in the party machine or whatever? I don't know. I'd say, I'd say as much as Rosanna Allen Khan has been the winner, I'd say, of this deputy leadership race in terms of increasing her name recognition and also turning this, it seems crass to say it, but turning this to her advantage or being, or rather being well equipped to speak convincingly and from a position of, relative authority on the question the big the biggest news story of the day i'd say her colleagues are less convinced and certainly many of them when she ran were of the view that she should perhaps as a member of the she was elected a by-election 2016 so technically a member of the 2017 intake should sort of wait her turn but i guess that's part of the problem with how people in the labor party conceive of you can certainly say the same thing about keir starmer and rebecca long bailey so she's not alone in that yeah, I mean, I think it's also to, to join the complete the chorus of people going, well, I don't have a vote, but I think Rosanna has, has been very impressive in this period. I mean, I think she's done a very good job in the kind of, you know, it, both in the crisis and beforehand, I think, in terms of boosting her profile. But my underlying assumption is that basically, if when the deputy leadership and leadership races are being held at the same time, the deputy race is changed by no event, right? Like, you saw this with people... Who, who started the leadership race in 2015, planning to vote for Yvette Cooper and Tom Watson, a sensible choice in terms of internal harmony, or indeed Andy Burnham and Tom Watson, which would have been slightly spikier, but would have still worked, or indeed Liz Kendall and Tom Watson, slightly spikier, but would have, would have still worked, who, when they switched to Jeremy Corbyn, were like, yeah, but I mean, of course I'm still going to vote for this faction fighter of the Labour right. What could possibly go wrong? And I kind of think that... Unless Angela Rayner had proactively done something, yeah, you know, let's say she had midway through coronavirus gone, well, let's face it, guys, we could use a few fewer elderly people in the electorate anyway. I'm off for some cocktails. <laughs> I, I, I can't sort of conceive of how it would change it. But I think the central question of like, what is the point of this role? I mean, I feel like almost all of us have had to hust, do a hustings in this uh, hilariously long process. And the thing I found difficult chairing the deputy hustings is I in a kind of very sort of like, you know, Billy Goatee way, decided I wasn't going to take any, I wasn't going to answer any questions that weren't about the role of the deputy leadership. Well, at least when I was sent these questions, I thought I'm going to, I will make sure that any question about the role of deputy gets asked. 
And that accounted for maybe five of the 20 questions I, I ended up asking, or however many it was, because you have a handful of people in the selectorate who are going, okay, how are you going to make the party run better? How are you going to support the leader? And then you have, I mean, they are all campaigning on policy, like a thing where it's just like, well, you know, it's sweet that you have opinions on policy, I guess. But in the end, the leader of the Labour Party and to a lesser extent, the Labour Party's democratic processes will will decide those things. You will get the job of like doing the are you having a good time conference <laughs> speech. Yeah, you certainly you certainly won't get to write Richard Bergen's clause nine on everybody getting a free wagon wheel with their with their Labour Party membership. You know what I mean? It's it, 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 all the ridiculous. I, I, I single out Richard Bergen. I think that's a, that's a bad habit of the lobby because he has he doesn't have a monopoly on bad ideas and is actually a very effective politician of his faction. Apologies there, but in terms of you know, in terms of some of the stuff, every leadership, deputy leadership candidate has come up with an idea or a policy, as you say, Stephen. And mm. the, the correct answer is not to even analyze it on its own terms. It's to say, why are you wasting? It's not. It's not so much you're wasting our time by making us read it. Mm. Why are you wasting your own time writing it? I suppose it's a. It's the point is actually you know you you put your flag in there, plant mm. your flag for the benefit of the selectorate. But it's sort of like, can you not do that by in a slightly <laughs> less um, wasteful way rather than working up overwrought policy proposals that will never see the light of day. But actually, for, if, you're, if you're Richard Bergen, it makes a lot of sense to do that because you can say, look, I have a, a fully formed Corbynite worldview that the next leader definitely won't have. So mm. keep me in your prayers, members, as it were. If you haven't already subscribed and are bored at home in isolation... Why not visit newstatesman.com and click on the subscribe button? You can try a subscription for just £12 for the first 12 weeks, which will keep us all, I was about to say keep us all in trainers. Obviously, we no longer need trainers, but it will keep our, us in lights and Zoom calls and uh, allow us to keep doing our journalism through this uh, uncertain and scary time. Uh, so, yeah, that's just newstatesman.com and then click on the subscribe button. And now it's time for a new section... And now it's time for something completely different. Patrick, I think you've been thinking about something completely different over the weekend, haven't you? As Well, as I, as I always do, as is my constitutional role on this podcast, <laughs> is to think about things no one in their right mind would ever think of. So I'm spending self-isolation at my family home in uh, Southport, the Paris of the North, as, um, as la only la. I call it. Well, I, I could bang on about Southport's history, as as any anyone who follows me on Twitter will see, I've been using my daily exercise to do. But something I have always um, been intrigued by about my hometown is that it is the birthplace of uh, the historian AJP Taylor. And now, growing up in Southport, it's a, it's a small-ish, but it's actually quite big, which always makes me sad that it's not dented the national consciousness to a great extent. But if you were to ask, you know, Sandgrounders, that's the demonym, of a certain age, who are famous people from Southport, they'll say Red Rum, the racehorse. Uh, our most, the most famous person from Southport is a horse. Then you might say Mark Ullman, the lead singer of Soft Cell, or you might say Lee Mack, Jack Rodwell, the injury-prone Manchester City starlet who is I'm held sorry, up. Jack as... Rodwell is more famous than a horse. Like, <laughs> I'm just gonna... I've heard of Red Rum, but I haven't heard of, of him. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, he's held up as anyone who's seen the Netflix series Sundle Until I Die. He's a, he's a pantomime villain. He was four years above me at school, actually. So, Jackie, if you're listening to the New Stetson podcast, it's um, <laughs> the chubby boy with the cowlick. Look how far I've come. Um, but something, something, something no one ever says, and I think this says more about 
the demographic who know who AJP Taylor is and anything else is is AJP Taylor who actually returned you know he's he was the first, he was one of the most famous historians of the 20th, 20th century popular historian a popular academic historian as it were one of the first teledons wrote extensively about power the origins of both the first and second world wars european diplomacy in the 19th century but no one no, no one knows he's from southport and this is always intrigued me and part of the reason for that is he wasn't a southport person um his family he was of a, a lancashire cotton dynasty and his and his family lived in a series of what were then called um we now call them detached houses but they're now uh, they were then called villas because southport is by the sea and people would come here to take the waters and it's sort of a slightly posher version of blackpool where you actually can't see the sea because the tides here are are awful but anyway that's a very long-winded way of saying i've been spending my exercise riding on the basis of very scant information, for instance, namely a documentary AJP Taylor did at 75, where he came back to Southport and just sort of walked around, just looking at where AJP Taylor used to live, which has been quite a nice experience. So he he stood outside a house and said, you know, I grew up here and I thought, brilliant, I found AJP Taylor's birthplace. There's no plaque. So I rode my bike there, took a picture of it, and it turned out um, I'd been catfished by AJP Taylor. It wasn't his birthplace. His birthplace was 10 minutes down the road. So I cycled there the following day, took a picture. Someone pointed out to me that you it's quite weird that you're riding around taking pictures of innocent people's homes during lockdown, but you know, in the interest of history. So yeah, and also it's been it's been a it's been an interesting experience because AGP Taylor, as a popular historian, and I mean that in the sense that he was popular rather than um, impugning his, the quality of his work has been been quoted a lot, especially in the Spectator. He's in James Forsyth's Spectator column this week in terms of he sort of, when people want to evoke memories of Britain during a crisis, they sort of reach for, they reach for AJP Taylor. The quote James Forsyth used was something like, you know, before the First World War, it was possible to live your entire life not knowing you're interacting with the state. So yeah, I, I, it's been a it's been a voyage of personal discovery um, for me. And you know, AJP Taylor had a quite a complex relationship with Southport because he liked to mythologise himself, as lots of boys from provincial towns genteel provincial towns in the north do you know he said he wrote uh, he wrote or said once you know it was absolutely uh, you know when i first arrived in oxford i was shocked because um it was the first time in my life i'd seen a northern town a town without whose skyline wasn't dominated by mill chimneys it's very much like well alan john percival you grew up in a you know a genteel seaside town and then boarded at a school in york so you've never seen a mill chimney in your life mate so yeah it's been a it's been a quite a voyage of personal discovery, but also it's made me think about the the writers we sort of grope for in terms of for an explanation at times of crisis. And it's interesting that we're all reaching for this. Um, well, the right certainly are reaching for um, reach for AJP Taylor. This is really useful for me because my my partner and I are actually uh, hosting a quiz tomorrow night on Zoom, and we've got a Lancashire and Armenia round to represent our two uh, heritages. So perhaps I can use some of these AJP Taylor facts in that quiz. Well, actually, <laughs> actually, AJP Taylor, because I know not to dox your um, your partner on uh, for the this podcast. Although our listeners, I'm sure, will love this biographical information. I know it's from Preston. <laughs> actually, there is a blue plaque because. When AJP Taylor was eight, his family moved to Preston and there is a blue plaque on one of his houses in Preston, much to my consternation because there was a blue plaque on neither of his lovely houses in Southport. Oh, wow. So oh, This you know, is even better because we, we could only get Nick Park um, as our Preston alumnus question, the um, famous animator. <laughs> 
again, how is Nick Park not? A, I, I'm sorry. I, this is this is deeply bringing home how, either how out of touch all of you are or how out of touch I am. Probably the latter. But we're just going to roll with it. How is Nick Park a smaller name? No, no offense, AJP Taylor, huge influence on my life. Wouldn't have read history if a history teacher hadn't lent me his English history, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But AJP Taylor is not a bigger deal than the Arden Animations guy. He just just isn't. Yeah, I mean, I have spent more time watching Wallace and Gromit than reading The Struggle for Mastery. <laughs> <laughs> it, what, is, what, <laughs> what is Wallace and Gromit if not a tale of The Struggle for Mastery? Very uh, true, very true. Over, over, nefarious, <laughs> uh, over nefarious plasticine creatures. <laughs> well, I think it's really interesting about the different texts that you... Um, that you read in this time because I've been reading The Road to Wigan Pier. Oh, nice! And of course, like it's very it's it's very bleak reading it, particularly in, in a bleak period. But it is about mass unemployment, which I suppose is quite poignant at this time. And there's a really nice passage in it about um, how important the drinking of tea and particularly sugary tea is to people's lives when they when they're living in crisis and they don't have um, any work to do or any money coming in. And that's kind of resonated with me when I was reading about the packages that the government's been putting together for vulnerable people and for children who need free school meals usually during this time, because you do feel you need the treats more than more than the healthy stuff. The custard creams. Yeah, so obviously, Patrick, you're getting back to the future. Anoush, you are doing a a his and hers quiz. What are you doing in this time of social distancing for fun this actually hadn't occurred to me before patrick started saying this but i feel like um patrick's example um really speaks to the way i think lots of people are exploring the areas around where they live a bit more i'm still in north london i haven't gone back to my family home in belfast but i think it it just reminded me that i haven't done this recently although i walked past a few a few days ago as well but when i moved here I live quite near Hampstead, about a 10 minute walk away. And um, I hunted down the the grave and the former house of a romantic playwright called Joanna Bailey, who I wrote my dissertation on at university. And um, she was a sort of great friend of all the romantic poets and used to hold these literary salons in Hampstead. She's sort of lost to history and is, is part of a sort of broader recuperation by female academics of um brilliant women writers she was described I think by Wordsworth I can't I can't remember who who described her as that era's Shakespeare but she's she's pretty good yeah her grave is just up the road and so is her house and that that AJP Taylor thing reminded me of of just the way I think maybe lots of people will be discovering the hidden gems around where they live yeah it's in, it's interesting what you say about the sort of the spaces that are incidental to your lives uh, to to one's life that you sort of neglect. I spend I, I spend a lot of time drinking when I'm back in Southport because I usually come back at a weekend, not because I, I have a problem. Although that's a that's a anyway. Um, <laughs> but the, the the pub I frequent is just off Southport's lovely promenade, um, and opposite it is what I always thought was an slightly unassuming Roman Catholic church. But actually, I, I discovered fairly recently. I, I discovered this, you know, when I was just doing some uh, homesick googling. Uh, about Southport, that it's um, it was designed by Pugin, the parliamentary architect, and indeed there's another church by his son Edward Pugin, a, a couple of miles down the road. So I, I, even in you know a, a seaside town that nobody's ever heard of, there is a wealth of um, a wealth of fascinating historical artifacts. And the Mecca Bingo on Southport's 
High Street, Lord Street, which itself was the basis for Hausmann's remodeling of Paris. That's absolutely true. The Mecca Bingo was the, as tweeted this yesterday, was, was the venue for Labour's 1939 conference at which Stafford Cripps, who had asked to rejoin the Labour Party or asked the NE, Labour NEC to reconsider his expulsion because along with um, with Bevan and others, he'd, he'd called for a, a popular front of... Um, a popular leftist front to to fight fascism was told to uh, to told to do one. So you know, I've I've discovered so much about this town. I thought I knew so well. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anusha Kelly, our political correspondents Patrick Maguire and Alva Ray. Our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you're enjoying the New Statesman podcast uh, and would like to contribute a question to you ask us please do do so using the uh, the Google form, which is on all of our Twitter accounts. Uh, and thank you very much for all of your questions and keep safe out there. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.